right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, I had no idea where, what I was coming to. Uh, so, so I'm really honored to be part of a worship time with you this morning. My goodness, uh, I'm very privileged and honored to stand amongst you and worship alongside you this morning. But I want you to all take a nice deep breath now and release yourselves of all the expectations that the lovely Dr. James Enns just set up in that introduction. <laughs> I was worried it was going to sound... It's not that big a deal, honestly. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, please. Mm. Loving God, inhabit our minds and our hearts. Open our eyes and our ears to your truth and yours alone. Lord God, may the words that I speak now be your words and anything that I say that is not of you, that it would fall away and melt into the ether. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious and powerful name. Amen. <clears throat> so, so I signed up for this talk on a, uh, choosing a date, not a passage. Uh, I'm going to begin by saying that uh, the passage has given me no small amount of trepidation to approach with all of you, not knowing any of you except James. Um, I am just, I was a little nervous about this. I mean, my goodness, right? Anointing, knowing the truth, the truth is in you, the antichrist. Okay, um, this is, let's talk about this with total strangers. Good idea. So this pericope begins with a portentous open, opening, right? It's like watching a massive storm uh, coming, kind of rolling in, as we know very well, in the prairies. Those dark clouds and the winds start to pick up, and you start feeling like, should I be boarding up the windows? It's the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. I don't know if you've ever heard of a book that's titled People of the Lie. It's written by an author named M. Scott Peck. He describes cases of extremely dysfunctional behavior that he had found in his practice. He had found that he could track, to a greater or lesser extent, the causes of unhappiness in people. It had a correlative kind of nature. Bad things happened to them. People maybe had ill-treated them, maybe in their childhood. They had made wrong decisions, and they were reaping the consequences of those things. Those kinds of problems are the stock and trade, of course, of the psychotherapist and the counselor. But there were cases where something radically different seemed to be at work, something darker, something more sinister. He was not prepared for this. You see, all his training in secular psychiatry and psychotherapy had ruled out the E word. There was no such thing as evil. There was simply different levels of human malfunctioning, let's say. There were different problems, different perceptions, but evil didn't enter into the discussion. But these other cases convinced this author, Mr. Peck, that that was wrong 
The people he wrote about in the book, The People of the Lie, had gone further than maybe you and I might. They had lied to themselves, they had lied to others and family and friends, and maybe we've done a little bit of that. But they had started to believe the lies that they told. And somehow, dark and incomprehensible as it might seem, they had invoked a kind of anti-power, the power of the lie. This is more than just the sum of their own deceit. There was more there, more was happening. There was something darker happening. In a sense, it is people of the lie that John is now warning us against in this passage. Obviously, John is not a psychotherapist. Don't, I'm not attaching that to him. Don't get upset with me. <laughs> he is not offering uh, some careful or complex analysis of human motivation that we might expect from a secular source. But he is putting his finger on one great lie above all other lies. He is warning that those who accept this lie and live by it are corrupting and are frankly a dangerous influence. So those who do not believe in the lie must learn to trust God's work in them. They must hold on to it firmly. The Antichrist, or anti-Messiah, if we keep the Hebrew form, is really anti-truth, is it not? They are people of the lie. Now, Jesus warned us, didn't he, of false messiahs, right? False messiahs that would arise after his departure that would deceive many. And he even said that they would come from among his own followers. Now, the complex world of first century Judaism was full of men and movements claiming that God was acting in a final way through some movement or person. And I can only sort of imagine, right, that first century Christians were wondering, hmm, as they heard about these movements, can this be Jesus? Has he come back? Huh. Should we go check this out? Should we be listening to this? can imagine, right, that the questions might rise. Should we go see? I mean, after all, nothing massive had happened, right? A few healings, maybe, right? And so it seems that John is acknowledging that some of those who had been with Jesus' followers, right, did go after new movements, did actually get drawn into those. He is in no doubt, though, that these are anti-Messianic movements, they have started out within the fellowship, but heart, the heart of the message is not with them. So I want to point out at this stage that this could look dangerously like self-justifying, right? We could begin to, I, I noticed the check in my own spirit as I was reading the passage, ooh, I could start feeling like anyone who leaves us is by definition not one of us, right? A little bit of a danger there. But John is saying something way more important than that, way more important. The true follower of Jesus the Messiah has been anointed, right? verse 20, so that a real change of heart and character has happened. Now, N.T. Wright speaks about one of the key symptoms, he calls it, of that change. And he says that it is precisely being the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. He is truly the Son of God. And those who are setting up anti-Messianic movements are denying that completely. Otherwise, why set up another movement? Why create something else? And so you can see how I've 
why I've tied them to the idea of being people of the lie. And the greatest lie, of course, of all, right, is pointed out to us in verse 22, is to deny the Father and the Son. John is clear <laughs> to, to deny Jesus as God's Son is to cut off access to the Father as well, since we can only truly know the Father through Jesus. Don't do it, John is insisting. These people are deceiving you. And then he says this, deep down, deep down in the core of who you are, you know this. Because that anointing remains with you. So that without anyone teaching you from the outside, as it were, you know the truth deep within you. And despite what they might be trying to tell you, you know it's true. Jesus is the Christ. As a reminded here um, of 1 Corinthians 12, I think it's verse 3, right? Only by the Spirit can we claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then this anointing John speaks of becomes kind of interesting to think about. The word anointing, of course, in the Greek has a similar root to the word Messiah. Messiah meaning anointed one. You all know that. God's anointed king, right, and only son. And here are the anti-messiahs, or the, let's say, anti-anointed ones. And John says, you have been anointed, so you must be, not, not be de- deceived sorry, by their denials. They're not just denying Jesus is Messiah, though. It goes a little deeper than that, if it can. They are denying everything that makes them who they truly are. Let me say that again. They are denying everything that makes you truly who you are. This is the lie, in N.T. Wright's words again, that if it's given its head, will eat away like rust into the minds and hearts of a Christian. So if you'll allow me to nerd out for a minute, I'm just going to dig a wee bit further into verse 27. (laughs) There seems to be, uh, in my opinion, there's at least two commentaries that agree, so I must be right. Right, James? (laughs) I'm sure. Anyway, there were six claims, and, and here they go. So number one is anointing is something given us. It's given Right? implying the contrast between those who are anti-anointing, anti-Messiah. This is given to us. Number two, the anointing, maybe this is obvious, has been received by God. Bless you. <laughs> Number three, the anointing abides. Now, the, the word that James used in the translation he read was remains. You heard the word remains a few times. Um, the translation I, I enjoyed reading on this one was uh, used abide. You'll see why in a minute. <laughs> so the anointing dwells or abides in us. Number four, the community's anointing teaches its members. There's no need for instruction for those who would mislead them because the anointing teaches. Number five, the anointing is real. It's not counterfeit, right? And so it is utterly reliable. And number six, because we are directed by this anointing, we're encouraged to reciprocate by abiding in the one who grants us this gift of anointing. And so the word anointing, uh, many of you have heard the word anoint or anointing, obviously, in probably lots of different contexts. Uh, Scripturally, there's medicinal anointing of the sick with oil, right? We see that sort of Mark 6, James James 4. And then Josephus even writes about this in the Jewish war. It's practiced now in my tradition, 
as well for the anointing of the sick, and maybe in some of yours. One, commentary, or one commentator suggested uh, another possible reference would be baptism. Why talk about anointing? Maybe they're talking about baptism. But first of all, there's no explicit reference. And also, those who have left the group, the secessionists maybe, <laughs> probably would have been baptized. So I don't think that's quite what the readers meant to understand by anointing. We hear of people, of course, having an anointing for a particular ministry, right? We've heard people say things like, that person has an anointing for youth ministry or fill in the blank, right? It's a particular purpose in that case. It falls kind of in line with something around what you might see in the Old Testament with kings and priests, right? And again, in my tradition, we anoint people that, that are ordained as well. It is a setting apart of service, activating certain gifts and energies for ministry. Interesting, I don't know if you knew this, but interesting that in the coronation of the royalty in England, the actual moment where Elizabeth II became Queen of England was the moment that she was anointed by oil by the Archbishop of Canterbury, not before. It is the anointing of oil that sets her on a new course. I have a whole thing about King Charles is not actually King Charles, but I won't go there right now. <laughs> He's not been anointed. <laughs> Another sense of anointing is more securely rooted, I think, in the Gospel of John. The anointing referred to here, of course, comes from the Holy Spirit, right? No oil necessary. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of the Spirit in many of the same terms that we hear it spoken of here in 1 John. We hear the Spirit, which is truth and bestowed by God and by Jesus upon the disciples in order that the Spirit may abide among them forever. Right? You can find those John 14, 15, 16. We know the Spirit is sent by God in Jesus' name and will teach the disciples all things, reminding them of all that Jesus said. Now, although our portion of 1 John doesn't expressly connect the sending of the Spirit, I think we can connect the biblical uh, images all throughout, right? 1 Samuel 16, Isaiah 61, Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. And then later, which I'm not allowed to preach on because I think someone else is doing that in the next couple weeks, John, 1 John 3, 4, 5. <laughs> so there's a strong relationship assumed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And both the Gospel of John and 1 John assume a mediated access of every believer in Christ to whom the Spirit bears authentic witness. So by our anointing, we remain bonded, just like the joining church did, to Christ, the Anointed One. So, here's my other favorite word in this passage, and it is abide. When I was looking up different uh, texts on the word abide, they had listed synonyms, synonyms, did I say that right? Synonyms for the word, including these. Remain, which is the word uh, that James' translation used. Dwell, tarry, linger. And one of the ways that they defined it was where the heart of the matter dwells. Isn't that lovely? Isn't there something just really beautiful and slow in the way that that word sits and lands with us? If we think about anointing, 
as being held onto by God, then our holding tight in return is our abiding in him, remaining, dwelling, lingering. We often say God is love, right? We have all said it, I'm sure, at least once. And I believe that is absolutely true. And I think you can also say that love does not force itself on its beloved. And so we are anointed by the Holy Spirit with the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what might our response be to that? And so I wonder, along with you, what might it look like to abide in Christ, to dwell, to linger, to remain I think it's the pivot. (laughs) I feel like it's the pivot of the passage today. By our anointing, we abide. By the anointing of our communities, we abide. So I'm going to ask you again, what does it look like for you to abide in Christ? For your friends, your families, your classrooms, your colleagues, to abide in Christ. What does it look like when a community abides in Christ? I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm going to let you linger on the thought of what it looks like for you to abide with the one who loves you more than any other being anywhere that you've met, (laughs) adores you. How do you abide with that kind of love? I'm going to invite you to pray with me, please. Loving Lord Jesus, We claim you as Lord of our lives. Open for us, Lord, spaces for abiding in you and with you and with the Holy Spirit, that we might be entirely convinced that you are the Christ, that we might embody that truth in the world, in every space that we walk into, Lord, I pray this for each of your beloved in this room. In your holy and the precious name of Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen.